0: Welcome back to the program. What would it take to give up your Western lifestyle, move to Ghana, live in a mud hut, and commit yourself to helping thousands of lost children? You would think that that kind of thing only happens in the movies or literature, that real lives are generally not that kind of fairy tale in reverse. Not true. Our guest Lisa Lovett Smith did exactly that. She traded in her glamorous life in Paris and a glamorous life at Vogue for the experience of moving with her daughter to Ghana. She tells her remarkable story in her new memoir, Who Knows Tomorrow? Lisa Lovett-Smith began her career in magazine publishing at the age of 18, and at 19 she became the youngest photo editor in Condé Nast history, and then became the editor of Spanish Vogue. Twelve years ago, she left everything behind and moved to Ghana, where she founded the organization O Africa. It is my pleasure to welcome Lisa Lovett-Smith here to talk about Who Knows Tomorrow?, a memoir of finding family among the lost children of Africa. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about what your life was like before you moved to Ghana. What were you doing in Paris?
1: Well, um, initially I was working for Vogue. I set up the Paris office for the Spanish Vogue group of companies. And that was great fun. So that involved going to the fashion collections. And sitting front row Center and admiring all the beautiful um, clothes and the girls and, you know, generally the kind of champagne atmosphere. And then I also wrote um, 13 books on interiors and design and photography
0: and those kind of things. And were you tired of all of that or was this something that you were enjoying when you made that initial decision to take your daughter to Ghana?
1: No, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I love living in Paris. And, you know, journalism is a wonderful thing, as you yourself um, know, because you have incredible access to people. And um, you can choose to steer your job in the direction of your interests. So I think it's a really privileged situation to be in. Um, no, no, I, I, I felt good. It was good.
0: And the decision to go to Ghana was because you wanted to show your daughter a different life, give her a sense of what what the world was like for people that didn't have it as fortunate as she did.
1: Absolutely. Well, my daughter was adopted, and it was quite a a turbulent um, story in terms of her biological family was very difficult. And... um, When she was an adolescent, as often happens with adoption, she had a bit of a crisis, and the psychologist who was working with her suggested that she see something different, Um, children who hadn't been adopted and who'd had to continue living in care, and she thought she should work on her empathy. So she suggested volunteering, and Sabrina and I both thought it would be more fun to volunteer somewhere exotic rather than, you know, around the corner. And so that's what we did.
0: So off you went to this orphanage in Ghana, and what happened?
1: Well, the orphanage was absolutely terrible. And I must say right away, um, I don't, in retrospect, um, really approve of volunteering um, unless you're qualified to do whatever you're going to do when you get to the um, developing world country that you're going to. Um, It was a really difficult experience. There was incredible abuse, and the orphanage was illegal, unregistered, and unregulated. Um, It was a real shock for my system.
0: And what was your reaction to it beyond that? This was a temporary thing. You thought you were there simply to show a really different kind of life to Sabrina.
1: Yes, absolutely. But, I mean, what was exciting about the situation is that I felt that I could make a difference. Because um, I realized that for the price of a hot dinner, I could pay for someone's um, education for a year. And that was just mind-blowing to me, I must say. I just just felt that I had an opportunity to make a difference and that I should.
0: And when did you decide that you were going to basically ditch everything that we talked about before and stay there?
1: Well... I don't know, Jeff. I guess I'm just the kind of person who follows their heart. (laughs) It was kind of immediate. I just felt that I could fix the situation. I discovered that I'm a warrior, something that I had never known about myself.
0: (laughs) Did you think you could dramatically change the situation over there?
1: Um, I did, actually. I I was very fortunate, Jeff, in being um, brought up by a mother who gave me um, incredible love and self-confidence because she um, basically never said anything negative to me. She always taught me I could be whatever I wanted to do, that I could live however I wanted to live. And I think that the result of that um, very
0: strong...
1: um, confidence-boosting childhood was that I, I really kind of did think so. It <laughs> doesn't sound very modest, but I knew that with the money that I had acquired over the years, I could move into that place and completely change it. I was very confident, and um, you know that, that's really what has mm-hmm. um, eventually happened, but not quite in the way that I envisaged it.
0: <laughs> How much of it was the stark contrast of the life that you were leading, and this sense that, you know, instead of just doing what you were doing, that you could go to Africa, that you could do this, and really change people's lives, change the world in a profound way.
1: Well, I mean, I think the contrast, you kind of get over in a week, or you don't get over it. I mean, you either deal with it, or you move on, you know, because the contrast, not having water coming out of taps um not having uh any kind of electricity and so on it's it's really difficult i mean you you either are the kind of person who could deal with that or you're not so once you are the kind of person who can deal with that you actually stop thinking about those things like you it just seems normal to wash up with a bucket you know Mm -hmm. and to have a long drop toilet you don't really think about it much after the first week um if you're not the kind of person who can deal with those things, you'll probably leave off the first day. <laughs> first day yeah. So I don't think it was the contrast, really. I think it was the feeling of empowerment that I mm. had. You know, I also believe, Jeff, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I think that people react to positive stimulation more than that they react to negative
0: stimulation. Mm-hmm.
1: So I think that I was, I was more likely to stay there because I thought I could help people and change things for the better than I was because it was so terrible. Do you know what I mean?
0: Right. And what did Sabrina think about this idea of staying, of going back there for good?
1: Well, she was just about to go to college. So I kind of commuted back and forth until I finished school. Um, but she loved it. And I think that she really wanted these kids to have at least the opportunity to fulfill their potential in terms of education. She was really shocked, I mean, especially by things around adolescents, you know, like teenage pregnancies or they were beating the teenagers. They were making them work on a farm. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of bullying from adults and the children. There was a lot of corporal punishment. And Sabrina couldn't stand that. Like, she really wanted me to go and fix it.
0: There was also a lot of corruption involved in this place.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I think it's important to say that um, no orphanage is a good orphanage. I mean, it's not the right way to look after children, especially children who have been damaged and traumatized. I mean, um, you know, you've got Orphan Annie, you've got Oliver Twist, pretty much documentaries, <laughs> as far as I'm mm. concerned, pretty much exactly what happens on the ground. So orphanages have never been the the solution is to reintegrate children into their families um, and set up a good foster care system for the children who can't be reintegrated. And So, I mean, the, the whole point about um, helping the orphanage or, or supporting the orphanage was, was wrong. I mean, that was my mistake. It was, um, and I mean, in a way, I wrote this book to raise awareness about the dangers that orphanages pose to children, but also to say, you know, I was taken in too. It wasn't just the fact of the corruption in that particular place. It's that the the system, the orphanage system, does not serve any child.
0: But was there any kind of a foster care model upon which you could build there or did that have to be created, did you have to create that very idea essentially from scratch in Ghana?
1: Yes, we had to create it from scratch. But it was tremendously exciting because it's not many times in the modern world that you get to do something that hasn't been done before. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we think 21st century, everything's been invented. And um, we were also made able to make a leap because, for example, we have a very, you know, a tech leap. We have a very IT-centered social welfare system with all the cases on computers and the social workers have apps and Of course, you probably don't have that in countries that have had a social work system for 100 years, because it didn't exist. So sometimes when you start late, you can start modern.
0: (laughs) Absolutely true. Were there cultural hurdles that you had to overcome? Were there things that were culturally inherent there that, that really ran counter to what you were trying to do, hurdles that you had to get through?
1: Well, I'll answer that question in two parts. First of all, um, the whole concept of foster care or family reunification is very African. It's very, very West African in particular. Mm. I think the extended family is one of Africa's great exports to the world. It's absolutely astonishing how people look after their extended family and how even in the age of AIDS, extended family networks have been so resilient I mean, there are millions of AIDS orphans and and you don't really feel them in the system. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. Um, So in that sense, I wasn't working against cultural values. I was, um, uh, how can I say this? I was was bringing checks and balances to existing systems um, in terms of when people take uh, kids into their homes now they, they have to be interviewed by social workers and there's some kind of checks and balances which there weren't before. But let's say that it was very much in the cultural norm. However, I did, um, and this is the second part of my answer, I did come up against a lot of um, cultural differences. Um, but I would say that the main thing with the cultural differences was that I initially was too ready to make allowances so I would see kids working in the fields instead of going to school and somebody would say well that's how um you know that's how we roll the kids Mm -hmm. have to work to earn their pay and I would be like oh okay and it wasn't until I became more confident and I married a Ghanaian and I had children of my own and I realized and I mean this this sounds very delayed but I realized that Child rights are the same all over the world, Jeff. Whether the person is in Napa or in Accra, the child on the street is a child on the street. And they deserve schooling, they deserve a name, an identity, and they deserve, most of all, a family.
0: How were you able to leverage the work that you had done in the past, the relationships that you had, in order to create O Africa, this organization, and accomplish the things we've been talking about?
1: Well, um, I was very lucky because Vogue, um, Italian Vogue, was a donor from the beginning and they've been one of our most generous donors. And then Missoni as well, which is another wonderful fashion brand, um, have supported us from the beginning. And Valentino just recently has started supporting us. So I had a lot of support from the fashion business. Really quite extraordinary.
0: And when you went to these companies, Vogue, you had a relationship with because you were working for them. But when you talked to these companies... What was the pitch? What did you tell them that you wanted them to contribute to?
1: Well, actually, I think that the fashion companies did it based on personal relationships, so they trusted me. So I didn't have to do, um, I didn't really have to sell the project. Um, I think I must have been a very good uh, worker (laughs) (laughs) for my employers to fund me. (laughs) Um, But, you know, subsequently, yes, we have had to present a lot of projects, and what I tell people is we support the government of Ghana to rescue children out of orphanages and resettle them with their families. Or if there's no family, we create foster families for them. And we support the families to look after their own.
0: Talk a little bit about the results that you've seen moving so many of these children out of, out of orphanages into foster care.
1: Well, it's been amazing. I mean, we have... a. I mean, an incredible success rate. I can only think, I mean, we've got about 450 people on our books. We've had about 350 people who've already graduated. And out of all that lot, I can only think of two instances uh, where resettlement failed. So, I mean, we, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, I remember getting on a bus and taking a kid back to his village and literally getting off the bus and having all the women in the village come around and crowd around me, crowd around the kids, crowd around the bus and start screaming for joy. You know, and preparing a feast and having dancing and drumming and, you know, my lost baby has been returned. Amazing stuff. I mean, you realize just how, how sad it is when a child is, is trafficked or taken away from their family. And and how not only does a child have a right to parents, but parents have a right to their child and grandparents have a right to their grandchildren.
0: How great is the need today? Is this something that, that ultimately you hope there isn't a need for at some point? Or is this something that there's always going to be a need for? And what is it about that place that creates this ongoing need, if so?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, my dream is that my organization will become irrelevant. (laughs) <laughs> because the government of Ghana would take on um, the social work um, and the resettling. Um, and having said that, I think that's quite likely. But in terms of children needing alternative care, I'm afraid that's never going to go away. It's, it's existed. It's as, as old as human history. Um, unfortunately, there are always children in society who do need alternative care, and it's our, you know, responsibility as adults to make sure that there are safe systems in place um, to help those children. There's a particularly strong need in Ghana because it's the only country, pretty much the only country in the world which has a majority matriarchal tribe. So the the main tribe in Ghana is called the Ashanti, as you may know. And um, their bloodline is transmitted through the women as opposed to through the men. So practically every other society in the world is patched. So the fact that the children belong to the mother as opposed to the father is, um, used to be a good thing because the women were the farmers and so there would always be enough food. But as the culture has become less of a culture based on, on food and goods and more of a culture based on money, unfortunately that system is failing because the women tend to make less money, just like everywhere else, mm. than the men. So, um, yeah, they they may need more support for longer, actually.
0: Lisa Lovett-Smith, her book is Who Knows Tomorrow? A Memoir of Finding Family Among the Lost Children of Africa. Lisa, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break.